0: forgiveness as well. It's not just a kind of thing that you do and you move on with your life. It can be costly. It was costly for the the father in the story. He had to be willing to give his son what was his due, and that that would be physically and emotionally painful as he saw his son go. The son himself, for whatever reason, whether rightly or wrongly, felt Uh, hard done by, and he wanted to move out. So, it was painful for him for the years that he'd worked there. The elder brother, it was painful for him as well because he wanted justice, and he felt that he wasn't getting it. And how can we talk about pain without mentioning the fatted calf? I mean, really, you know, uh, uh, he he, he suffered as well. But as you look at the story, it seems to me that there's something that we get in this story that tells us something profound about forgiveness. And I hope maybe if you're in a place where you've not fully understood or experienced the love of God in that forgiving way that releases you, that has done with your past, that deals with all of the things that you've done wrong, which all of us have, the things that haunt us in the small hours of the night and so on, that we think, I wish I hadn't done that this story can change your life forever. So, what do we learn from this? Where where did he get it wrong, the prodigal son? It seems to me the first thing he got wrong was he had a wrong view of his father. He had a wrong view of his father. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So, he divided his property between them. Now, you've got to watch how far you push parables because usually they've got one or two main points that they want to put across. But I think reading into this story, I can imagine that the prodigal son, the younger son, had a view of his father which was, he was restrictive. He didn't like the boundaries that were put around his choices and his life. Perhaps he was a bit of a killjoy, and he, he resented that for whatever reason. And so, he had this wrong, possibly this wrong view of his father. And in that culture, the father wouldn't just go down to the local bank and pull some money out. He would actually have to, because his property would be his wealth. His wealth would be invested in his property. So, the father would effectively possibly have to sell… Um, part of his property, maybe um, buildings, maybe part of the farm, maybe part of his livestock. But either way, he had to do something that he had not planned to do until his death. Effectively, he would have been a rich man until his death. Then his property would be divided. But with the younger son coming to him, he was effectively saying to him, "'Dad, I wish you were dead. You're in the way.'" I want what is mine, what's rightfully mine. So, as a result, the father would then live on poorer because he'd given part of his estate away. And so, he has this idea that I want what's due to me, and you're restricting me, and I wish, essentially, I wish you were were dead, because then I would get what is due to me and what I want, my wealth, my inheritance. And so he had this wrong view of who his father really was. And we can sometimes have that. You know, even we live with our father many years often, and you can have a wrong view. Sometimes it's a right view, but sometimes you get it wrong. But especially with God, because that's what this story is about. Jesus is saying, this is what God is like. And so he's saying to us as possible prodigals, Do you understand what God is really like, or do you see Him as a killjoy, as putting boundaries and limitations around your life? Luther, the champion of the Reformation, was a a, a monk in a monastery, and he had a terrible relationship with his father, We're told that he could scarcely bear to pray the Lord's Prayer because his own father had been so stern that the word father painted a picture of grim terror to him. And the Reformation came because Luther understood that his concept of God was totally wrong. Here was a God who wasn't requiring him to work hard to earn forgiveness. But here was a God who was willing as a free gift to forgive Luther. And as a result, his life was transformed. But the starting point was to see that he had a wrong concept of God. And the New Testament all over the place says we can actually approach with God, God with great intimacy. Jesus dared to call God Abba. Hebrew term for actually daddy. And Paul, the apostle who was one of the major early Christians who was instrumental in the spread of the church and so on, wrote to a church one day and said, the Spirit you received, and that's the Holy Spirit that comes into our lives when we become Christians, this is what happens. He brought about your adoption to sonship, And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. So, Jesus dares to call God Daddy. Paul dares to call God Daddy. But that's Jesus and Paul. I mean, they're really important guys. How dare I? He says, but we cry, Abba, Father. So, what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying, what the New Testament is saying is that the God that, that we speak to and have that relationship with is equivalent to our dad. We can go to him. We don't have to wait. Uh, uh, we don't have to make an appointment and, and so on to, to come to see God, but he's there. In fact, tragically, often we can go days without speaking to him, and he's waiting humbly, the creator of the universe is waiting to have quality time with you and me. And we sometimes, you know, oh, I'm too busy. Sorry, God. We don't actually say it that way, but the way that we live our lives often is that way. David Pawson, a, a Baptist minister, uh, I'm not sure whether he's still alive, but he was down in Guildford um, uh, in a church there, the Millmead Center, and he was on holiday in, in Israel, in the Holy, in, in the Holy Land. Um, one summer, and he's walking along the road past a school, and he heard this child's voice shouting, Abba! 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 And he thought, oh, I recognize that word. And then this little boy ran past him, and he says, he threw himself towards the man at the school gates who caught him and swung him round and round, laughing and loving. And I saw that if this had been the UK or America, the boy would have shouted, "Daddy, daddy, daddy," and he said, "That changed my prayers, because I realised now that God was someone who—not just my father, but there was an intimacy and a freedom of access." I remember, in the first church I was in, there was one or two um, young women who came and became Christians. They had—they came from totally non-Christian backgrounds, but I couldn't work out. Um, why as they came into church each Sunday, one or two of them, almost from the point that the worship started, they would end up in tears. Um, And and I, I sometimes would speak to them. But some of them, the reason was not just, some of them it was the sense of God's presence that moved them. And they just felt accepted. But some of them, It was the fact that I was talking about God as my father. And as I explored their story, tragically, some of them had grown up in homes where their fathers had been absolutely abusive in all sorts of ways. And for them to be told that God was a father was one of the most painful and and we had to pray with them sometimes over a period of weeks or months until they got to the point where like the prodigal they had to change their view of what their father was like he was unconditionally loving and so what we what we need to do because there may be someone here this morning i'm not asking whether you're a christian or not a christian you may be a person of faith but you may have carried a view of God shaped by other people in your life, wrong ideas, wrong experiences, and you've retained that sense of a disapproving, hanging judge rather than father who's looming in the background waiting for you to step out of line like the prodigal son. And he wanted to get rid of that. So, his first problem was he had a, a wrong view of his father. But the second thing is, he had a wrong view of freedom. The younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. His concept of freedom was I want to be able to do exactly as I liked. As the soup dragons and the stones said, in the 90s and the 60s. I'm free to do what I want any old time. And that, of course, was the 60s. I mean, I'm a a boomer. I'm a baby boomer, and I grew up in the 60s, and I thought the 60s was great. But quite frankly, their concept of freedom is something that we're still paying the price of, frankly. Let's just chuck away all boundaries. No one's going to tell me what to do I'm going to live exactly as I like. And he had this wrong view of freedom because he saw the boundaries as restrictive. And we need to see freedom as that God gives us is the freedom to obey. Yes, we are free to do what we like and then destroy our lives. We can do that. But that kind of freedom eventually leads us into the utmost bondage and restriction, and we end up in a prison cell of our own making. It's a kind of freedom, but it's not the kind of freedom I want. And the freedom that the Bible talks about is the freedom to obey. When Jesus says, love your enemies or forgive people or go the second mile or or, don't hold on to things or um, go into the world and, and, and transform the world and make disciples and so on, those aren't restrictive things. Those are the boundaries out of which true freedom comes. Elizabeth Elliott, who is a a missionary, well-known missionary, said, freedom and discipline have come to be regarded as mutually exclusive, when in fact freedom is not at all the opposite, but the final reward of discipline. It is to be bought with a high price, not merely claimed. The professional skater and the racehorse are free to perform as they do only because they have been subjected to countless hours of grueling work, rigidly prescribed, faithfully carried out. And any of you have learnt a musical instrument, you'll remember the days you walked through the rain or the snow to that old woman who used to you, teach you how to play piano. And my goodness me, how your fingers, oh, a few, a few smiles throughout, the, uh, how, my, how your fingers ached. remember mine when I learned guitar. It wasn't an old woman. It was a young guy, but my fingers still ached. My goodness me. But that was the, the discipline whereby now you can play music in the most wonderful… You have a freedom to express that. Why? Because there was the disciplines that went beforehand. If you run or if you try to keep healthy or if you, you run marathons like uh, young Victor, I'm sure there are many days. How, many, how often do you go out, out running? Is it most days? Sorry? Five or six days. How, long, how far do you run each time, roughly? Ah, oh, 10 miles an hour. <laughs> now, he, Victor, was able to come to the end of, um, um, likely many, were you not down in London doing a marathon recently? Yes, right. So, he didn't just wake up one morning, say, oh, I'll buy a new pair of trainers and running shoes or whatever, I think I'll try a marathon. No, no. The freedom to be fulfilled in that way was, was bought with the, the, the much discipline over months, if not years. And so, therefore, we need to recognize that our freedom is not just to do what we like, but actually to, to work within the boundaries that God gives us. Uh, Brad Pitt, talking about this story, um, he grew up in a Christian, as far as I know, a Christian home, Southern Baptist, and he said, this is a story which says, if you go out and try to find your own voice and find what works for you and what makes sense for you, then you're going to be destroyed, and you'll be humbled, and you will not be alive again until you come home to the Father's ways. And he's speaking negatively, saying, it's just wanting to limit who you are. It just wanted to take away your freedom. That was when he was younger. He then went into atheism, and he describes that as his rebellion. Quite recently, he's been interviewed, and he's talking about how the fact that he's actually coming back to the faith that he grew up with. I don't know whether he's a committed Christian yet or not. I don't know. All I'm saying is he now sees, almost like the prodigal returning that there is a love there for him. There is hope there for him that he's rejected, but it was based on the wrong view of of freedom. Let me just push this a bit further because I was thinking about this morning, and I hadn't planned to say this yesterday. I had this all done, but I've got all sorts of pencil marks on it because I came up with all sorts of new stuff, and I thought, God, for goodness sake, why didn't you tell me this yesterday before I actually typed it out? But anyway, he chose not to. And I was thinking... Most of us, I think, oh well, I'm okay. I'm not a prodigal. I'm here at church, and I found myself thinking there are times when even when we're at home, going to church, doing all this stuff, but there are points where that can become maybe slightly boring and predictable. Old house slippers, you know, whatever. You well, that's what I do. I'm a Christian. I go on a Sunday morning and. And, and, and that's what I've done for, I um, grew up in a Christian home or whatever, but there can be those times in our lives where actually we're exploring that, just pushing that boundary. Um, that bit of darkness that we've never actually experienced that other people have and a a new road starts appearing, and we start going in a direction that ultimately leads to death. But right now, I've got it controlled. I've got it under control. I'd have to confess that there have been times in my ministry where, as I've been leading a church, I've thought to myself, right, we've got to this stage. Where do we go from here? And There can be a settledness in the wrong sense. There's not that vision. There's not that edginess. There's not that, God, I'm open to whatever you have for me. I'm quite happy with the predictability of this, and I'm going to stay within this. And I can think of one young man that came to in one of the churches I was in, and he said, Andy, and he was a really committed Christian, zealous and, and doing all sorts of good work in the church. He said, could you pray for me? And can, you, can I be accountable to you? Because there's, there's places on the internet that I should not go. No one knows about it. And I look as if I'm still at home, but I'll tell you, I'm in a far country when I explore those areas. I'm in the darkness so I want you to ask me the hard questions. And it's, it's, it's shocking to us when we come across sometimes significant Christian leaders, and there's one more in this past week, and I won't say who it was, but those of us who follow people and say, I, this guy's books, have, at that conference I went, it changed my life. The way that that person describes and explores the Bible, and then all of a sudden you realize sometimes for decades this person has been in a far country. And, and how have they been in a far country? And it's a reminder to all of us, one is that there but for the grace of God go I, so we don't point the finger, and that all of us are, have, have clay feet. And sometimes maybe we invest too much in those significant others that we set up on a pedestal. And we've got to watch that, that the only one that we look to is Jesus. But I suppose I want to say to all of us, including myself, are there areas of our lives where we're in a far country and we're exploring stuff that we should, or even, you know, relationships that are wrong? We can justify them. You know, we, we, we meet with that person to discuss things and plan things, but then we find ourselves wanting to, to meet with that person more often than we should, and all of that kind of stuff. You know what I'm talking about. It's the darkness of our hearts. The the, the line between the good guys and the bad guys does not go down between the ones with black hats and the ones with white hats in the cowboy films. It was predictable then. We knew, oh, white hat, he's a goodie. No, No, that line goes right down the center of each and every one of us. And there's a far country, and there's a home and each and every one of us, and so we need to remember that we have a proper a, a, a proper view of freedom. It's not um, it's not just doing as we want, but it's actually embracing within the boundaries of what God gives to us. And of course, this story tells us that if we have strayed into the far country, if you are this morning in a far country of, you know, trying to explore beyond the boundaries of what God wants for you, there is a return possible. Because the third thing we find here is that he had a wrong view of forgiveness. And what he says is, I'll go back to my father. He he rehearses and, and plans this speech The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. In other words, he believed that when he came back, he would no longer have the rights of a son or an heir And he was thinking, well, I'll I'll work as one of your hired servants. Maybe you could give me somewhere to to sleep at night and some food. That will be brilliant because it's ten times better than what I had in the far country when I was feeding pigs. At least if you give me that, I will be happy. I will be as one of your hired servants. He expected to be treated as a slave. And one of our problems is that, if we have a wrong view of God, then we can see ourselves not as sons or daughters, but as slaves and and being told what to do and, and it being an imposition upon us. And he had this wrong view of forgiveness. And what we see in the story is that the father ran to greet him. Incidentally, the love of the father was expressed in the first place in letting him go. You would have thought that if the father really loved him and knew what was best for him, he'd say, no, you're not going, and I'm not giving you your inheritance. And that's what some of us would have done. And maybe uh, our child would have nursed the rebellion through years. There is a cost involved in parenthood and grandparenthood where sometimes you've got to let your kids do what they will do. Now, we have to advise them, we have to train them, and we have to uh, make sure that we don't don't let them get away with with crazy things. But there comes that point in their life where they have to be let go. And that's what the father did. He let his son go. But when he sees him in the distance coming back, he runs to greet him. Now, you need to know in that culture a couple of things. One is that likely the town. Everyone in the town would live up the one street, and the father ran down that street to greet his son. But in order to do that, and this is in a patriarchal society where the father would have great dignity and great authority and great standing in the community, he has to lift up his robes and his skirts and run down, and he would have to expose his naked legs to the whole community. Why? Because he so wanted to meet his son as quickly as possible. One scholar says that it's also possible in in that culture at that time, if someone went into a Gentile country and spent their inheritance, if they ever dared to come back to their community, there was a kind of ritual that the whole community would get involved in. They'd get a large pot, and they would break it. And as the the, the the reprobate came back into the community, they would all start shouting accusations at him and blaming him and pointing the finger at him. And one scholar says that the father was trying to make sure that he got there before the before the town did, which is a possibility as well. But I can imagine when the town saw the father's forgiveness and love, they would say, "Oh." get rid of that rock. <laughs> um, make sure that, you know, that no one sees that. But, and, and when he, he, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The words in that little verse, compassion for him, means compassion from the very guts, the very depths of his being. This wasn't some superficial show of love and compassion. This was wrenching him because he had been longing for his son for how many years, I don't know. But here he was back, and the compassion just overflowed. And the kissing him means he showered him with kisses. That's literally what it means. This dirty uh, son who had been in pigsties and lost all his money and, and, and done all sorts of stuff that he was ashamed of, he throws his arms around him and far from using him and, and uh, employing him as a slave, he says, get the best robe, throw a party, kill the fatted calf, and put the ring on his finger, all symbols of sonship. He's reinstated. And what is it he says? He says, this son of man, mine was dead but is alive again. This isn't about keeping accounts. This is about resurrection. This son of mine who was dead is alive again. And so, this concept of forgiveness where I can become a slave, and I've got to watch out, and I've got to make sure I do all the stuff that I'm meant to do, some of us have been brought up with that flavor of spirituality, with very little grace and very little mercy. And the picture of the Father the picture of God in this story is one that is overwhelming, and he's and, and it's filled with grace and filled with love. Let me finish with one story. I was at a conference last year, and the man who was speaking at the conference, uh, high flyer, a big academic, he was a um, he's an advisor to the EU and church relationships. He advises MPs in 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 uh, uh, down south uh, uh, in terms of church relationships and so on and other things. He grew up in a really poor area um, and uh, had a horrendous childhood. His father beat him, locked him in cupboards. He has memories of being put in something where he was kicking against a glass door. And he he says, it it can't have been a washing machine, but it must have been something like that because I can remember it. He was sexually abused uh, in his childhood, and he had this horrendous childhood. And eventually, I think he connected with some Christian fellowship. He heard the gospel. He became a Christian, and his life started to, to change and to be transformed. And, he, and, and, and someone in the conference put their hand up and said, when was, the, when was the point where things changed? And he said, well, when I was quite young in the 90s, he said, I was asked to run a uh, minibus. That's the word I was looking for. For young people to a, a concert in Motherwell Civic Center with a strange man from America called Larry Norman. And so he ran them to that concert, and I actually, the minute he said that, I thought, that was the concert, the band I played in, we played support to Larry Norman at that concert back in the 90s. And he said, there came a point in the concert, and if you know Larry Norman, he's just a, a, a fascinating communicator, but he stopped in the middle of a song, and he said, you know, in a kind of Californian drawl, you know, God couldn't love you any more, and He could not love you any less. And then he said, He's not disillusioned with you because He had no illusions in the first place. And this hit him like an arrow, and he broke down in tears, uncontrollable tears. He had to be carried out of the, the hall he was incapacitated, unable to drive the, the minibus back. He got up the next morning, and he wept all day. I mean, some people might say he was having a nervous breakdown. I don't think he was. I think the Holy Spirit was upon him. He got up the next day, wept all day. He got up the next day. And this went on. I can't remember if it was a week or two weeks. Either way, it was a long period of time. And he said he got up one morning, and he said, I'm okay. I'm unconditionally loved by God, and because of the the dysfunction of his childhood, he'd never seen God as a loving father, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit had done it, and he saw, and he stood in front of this quite a big gathering of Christians, and he said, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I don't give a flying, and if you can imagine what he said after that, what you think of me, now, that, that was risky, but he was trying to say, I'm more concerned about how God sees me. And he wasn't saying, I don't care what you think of me, but he was just saying, my identity comes from the Father in heaven. And I suppose for us today, if, you've, if you're here, I don't know whether you're here for the first time or you're exploring faith or whatever, there is forgiveness for you. Your past can be cleansed. The Father waits at the end of the street. He's running to, to gather you in His arms and smother you with kisses. I know that's embarrassing, but that's what He wants to do. And it may be that you're a Christian. You may have been a Christian for many, many years. But that side of the Father in heaven, you've never really got hold of. And maybe this morning, as you respond to Him, the Holy Spirit will do that for you and you will enable, be enabled to see that for the first time. Now, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to pray and I'm going to give an opportunity for people if they want to, to stand. Now, you, you might want to stand for yourself or you might want to stand for someone that you know is a prodigal that you would love to see return. So as you stand, you're either standing for yourself or standing for someone else and I will pray for you. Then we will watch a video um, and then, as we sing our final songs, there is a, there's a set of candles over here. I want you to think of the big one as God and His light. And there's a number of tea lights here. And if it's meaningful to you, only if you want to do this, as we're singing the final songs, come out. And as a symbol of saying, I Lord, I want you to set me on fire again. Or maybe for the first time, take one of those tea lights and light it from the center one and place it down and just go back to your seat. Does that sound okay? If you want to do that, so let's pray. And then we'll watch the video and then we'll sing our final songs. But let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you that we can call you Father. You are a loving, heavenly Father. And we thank you for your Son and we thank you for this wonderful story that he told us about how you love us unconditionally, how you wait for us, how you run to us, not begrudgingly, not with your arms folded with judgment, tapping your foot, but running, running to the end of the road to lift us in your arms. And so we thank you, Father, that you love us in that way. We, it will take us all of eternity to fully understand what that feels like and means, but we want to start now. And some of us, if not all of us, frankly, Father, need to know more of that unconditional love. So in the quietness of these moments, we want to feel able to stand. And so I just invite you, if you want to stand in His presence, and I will simply pray for you.